Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. I want to thank everybody for uh, coming out today, coming out on a, well, it's a kind of a cloudy day, but you can feel fall coming in the air, can't you? Yes. Little Phil Collins, I can feel it coming in the air today, right? Um, today we are going to be continuing our study of the book of Acts that we've entitled Acts, the Gospel Unleashed. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. If you didn't bring your Bible, that's okay because we're going to have the scripture up here on the screen. And, you know, while you're turning there, just wanted to uh, say that over the years, I have really come to love the church. And I hope I do because I'm a pastor here. But I really love the church. But I can't say that that's always been the truth about me because there was a time in my life when I was more critical about her. Um, I saw her flaws. I saw what she was doing, her hypocrisy. I saw things that she was doing wrong. And so I was very critical of her until a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, said to me, you know, you need to be careful how you talk about the church. Because the church is the bride of who? Of Christ. He said, you may have a certain feeling about the church, but that's not how Jesus feels about the church. Jesus loves his church. How do we know? He died for her. And when he told me that, it's like a light bulb clicked on. And I realized, you know what? I'm part of the church, but I think sometimes I'm better than the church, right? And, you know, this week I was reading an article online that discusses five reasons that people don't attend a church gathering. And I'm going to go over these real quick. And it's really, it's really uh, to me, discouraging to hear the reasons why people don't attend church. One, number five is that they're not finding community. That is amazing to me. The church is supposed to be all about relationships. The church is to be all about community. And we're living in a culture that has a uh, growing epidemic of loneliness. And yet 10%, uh, only 10% of the people that took that survey said that they would go to church to find community. Number four, they said that they're not learning about God. That, when I read that, I was like, they're not learning about God. Now, I don't want to stand up here and be all like, I can't believe that's true. Maybe that's true sometimes when you leave here. But evidently, there are people that when they attend church to learn about God, they leave scratching their heads because they didn't understand the message. Number three, uh, why people don't attend a church gathering is because of a legitimate doubt is pro. Have you ever been to a church and you've had questions and you felt like, man, I just can't really share what I'm really thinking right now because if I do, they're just going to say, just believe or give me some trite answer or make you feel foolish. You know, we, I want to just stop right here and say that I'm not saying we do this perfectly, but that is something that we as a church, we want to be open to having open dialogues about things. We want to be able to to discuss faith. There are things in this, in the word of God that to be honest with you, I'm still going, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. But we want to be a place where we can talk about doubts and thoughts that we're having. We don't want to be a place where those things are prohibited. Number two, now this one just literally 
if my I don't have a mind to be blown anymore, it blew the rest of my body apart. But it's, it's how can this be that God is missing in the church? Um, I mean, who, who or, or what is the church to be about? Who, who or what is the church to be focused on? Um, it says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, For there, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Let me say that again. There's one God from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We exist for God. God doesn't exist for us. The church exists for God. So if we come to church and he's not, people are saying he's not there, we need to ask ourselves, are we truly being a New Testament church? Number one, I want you to help me fill in this blank here, all right? Let's <clears throat> we'll say it together, all right? The church is full of... Okay, see? Yeah, okay. You know the sad thing about that is, is we all knew that. We all knew that, didn't we? If you've been in the church for very long, you know that, right? And uh, on one hand, I'm not going to argue with that, because the church is meant to be a hospital for the sick, right? Jesus said, I didn't come for those who are healthy and well. I came to help those who are sick. It's not to be a, uh, a museum for the untouchable perfect. And when it comes to the church being full of hypocrites, I like what John MacArthur says. He says, that's right, and there's room for one more. <laughs> and, you know, the point is that I'm trying to make here is I'm not trying to legitimize being hypocritical. But I do, if we're truthful, if we're not hypocrites and we speak the truth, we all deal with being hypocritical, don't we? All of us do. This is a sin that uh, we all have to struggle with, and that's what the focus of our passage is today. I want to warn you that today is a heavy topic when we go through the Scriptures, uh, through this passage. Um, but I hope at the end we're going to come out changed. We're going to come out encouraged. And... Um, So what we're going to look at today is that hypocrisy. We're going to look at hypocrisy and how God views it. And up to this point in the book of Acts, it's been like this utopian dream world, right? Like a utopian dream world. From chapters 1 to chapters 4, we have words like worship, rejoicing, a sense of awe. And that's because people are responding to the voice of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is bringing conviction. The people are listening and responding, turning from sin and turning to Jesus. And it says that there's refreshment going on within the community of believers. There is one heart of unity. And it says that there was not a needy, we read this last week, there was not a needy person in their midst. And remember at the end of Pastor Terry's passage last week, we learn about this dude named Joseph, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was one of those guys. Have you ever been around somebody that's just you want to be around because they just encourage you? They bring life to you? Well, that's what Barnabas must have been like. But he also was a model of what it looks like to be a sacrificial giver. He challenges, challenges, chap. He challenges us all. 
in that, right? How much, let me ask you this, how far are you willing to go to meet somebody else's need? That's what Barnabas does. Because it, what, what does it say? It said that he had a field and he goes out and he sells it. He takes all of that money and he lays it at the apostles' feet. What for? To be distributed to the needs of the people. Now, that, I want you to think about that. That is, that is incredible what Barnabas did. Think about that. How much money would that be? In Asheville, if you had a half acre lot, and how much would a, she's a realtor, if you need some realtor, wait, you didn't pay me for this. Uh, if you need a realtor, what is the, how much would a half acre lot cost in, in the city of Asheville? If you could find it. 35 to 50. 35, okay, that's, that's really good, right? I've seen them from 70, 90 to 100, and that's on a, a side of a hill like that. But just to say that it was $50,000, can you imagine selling it and bringing it all and placing, placing it at the feet of the apostles? Well, that's what Barnabas did. And it's clear that this was a noble deed. He had pure motives. And the people, there's no doubt, held him in high esteem for what he did. And this is such a glorious season in the church, in the life of the church. There's a spirit of life. The church is healthy. It's unified until we reach Today's passage in chapter 5, which begins with verse 1, which says, but. It begins with the word, but. So what we see here is that there is a contrast that is about to take place in the church. Let's read. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Okay, that's exactly what Barnabas did. They sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, nobody told you what you were supposed to do with this property. Peter continued, continues, he says, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man. Peter says, you know, you've not lied to me. You've not lied to the church, but you've lied to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear fell upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, pay attention to what Peter's about to say, do here. He says, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, for this or that. So what it looks like Peter is doing here, possibly what he's doing here, is he's giving her a chance to tell the truth. He's giving her a chance to come clean of what they have done. So he goes, is this, did you pay this much money for the land? And she said, yes, 
for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, uh, I think it goes without saying that this account is a sobering account, isn't it? It's, it's disturbing. And, and you know what? Um, it's meant to be. This passage is here because God loves us. And I hope we see by the end of this passage why that is. But this passage is here to be a warning from God to the church. And you know, up until now, Satan has been attacking the church from the outside. He's been using the, the Jewish religious leaders to arrest the apostles to try to get them to stop preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they won't. And now Satan appears to have changed his approach and is attempting to, get, to gain a foothold from within the church. And you know, if you want to destroy an individual, you know how you destroy somebody? Get into their head. Plant seeds of doubt. Plant seeds of disunity and discouragement. You want to destroy a family? You want to destroy an organization, a community? You want to destroy a nation? The most effective way to accomplish this is to attack, not from the outside, but get on the inside, from the interior. And you know, I, unfortunately, I think we all are seeing this. That's what's happening in our nation today being destroyed from inside. And, you know, that's what Satan in our passage today is doing. He's using Ananias and Sapphira to disrupt the church from within. And the truth about this is, is that he has continued to do this in churches today. Uh, one pastor said, Satan goes to church. Satan goes to church. And when he does, he plants... Uh, what Jesus calls in Matthew 13, tares among wheat. As you can see on the screen here, I get, can you see that? There are, uh, one of those is a wheat, is wheat, and the other is a tare. And the thing about a tare is that when they're first planted, they are weeds that will choke out uh, grain. And when it's planted side by side, you can't tell the difference at first. A tare talks like wheat. A tear looks like wheat. A, a tear walks like wheat until it gets to maturity. And over time, it shows that it doesn't produce true fruit. It doesn't produce true grain. And maybe this morning you're wondering, you know, I wonder if, if Ananias and Sapphira were true believers. That is a question that comes up when you go through this passage. And to be honest with you, that's a question I ask. I don't know. The passage is not very extremely clear on whether or not they were true believers. Uh, there are many who have studied this who would say, you know, I believe they are believers. And the reason that we question were they true believers is because God put them to death. But that, just because God puts someone to death does not mean that they are not true believers. In a little bit, uh, after the sermon, we plan to have what we do every week, communion. And when we have communion, one of the things that we do week after week is we encourage people, examine yourself before you come to the table. Don't come here nonchalantly. 
Come here examining yourself. If there's something in your life that, you, that God's dealing with you with and you are not willing to listen and obey, stay away from the table until uh, you have gotten that right with God or if it's with another brother or sister. And the reason we do that is because in 1 Corinthians 11, 30, Paul warns the church that before you take communion that you need to examine yourself because people were not examining them themselves. They were just living their lives any way they wanted to. They were true believers living their lives any way they wanted to. And it says that Paul said that's the reason that, uh, that you, there's many in, among you who are weak. They are, they are ill. And then he says, and some have died. So there is a possibility that Ananias and Sapphira could have been true believers uh, who God disciplined and put to death. But that's not the main point that we want to see here this morning. That's not the main question we want to uh, answer here this morning. The one thing that I want us to see, though, is that Satan was at work within the church very early in the birth and the life of the church. And he had filled their heart to do what they did. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying that Satan or demons can, can possess a true believer because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But Satan can influence us. He can tempt us. He can't make us, but he can tempt us to sin as he did Ananias and Sapphira. And if you're taking notes, I've got a, a couple of, uh, a few questions that I want to ask just throughout our time together. And the first one is this. What was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. What was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? Now, when we first read through the passage, you might make the mistake of thinking that the reason that God put them to death, the sin that they committed, was that they didn't give everything that they had when they sold the property. But we need to understand that God never commanded them to sell all their possessions and give them away. Uh, in verse 4, Peter says this. He says, while it remained unsold, while that piece of property remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, no one told you, no one forced you to sell that piece of property. And then he continues and he says, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, God gave you that piece of property. Why did he give, why does God give us anything? He gives it to us for us to enjoy. We need to understand that and to use it to bring glory to his name. And so Ananias and Sapphira were free to do anything with that piece of property as long as it was for the glory of God. And uh, we need to be reminded that when, that when uh, God talks about giving, there is a way that God wants us to give. Uh, Paul is talking in, first, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. He's talking to the church about giving a gift to another church that needs help. And this is what he says. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. In other words, don't let somebody pressure you into doing something against your will. Don't let somebody guilt you into giving. That's not the way that uh, we should be encouraging one another to give. Have you ever been in a, a church service and the pastor said, look, you need to tithe because if you don't, what? God will get his. That, I have heard messages like that. And I'm like, where is that in the Bible? That is not a biblical 
teaching. That is not the heart of God because it says God loves a fearful, no, cheerful giver. It doesn't say a fearful giver. You know, we got to be reminded that our God, our Father is not an ogre. He does not force his children to obey and to love him against their will. He wants us to voluntarily love and serve and obey from a heart of gratitude. Isn't that what you want if you're looking for a spouse or someone, a friend? You don't want them to come to you because they're afraid of you, that, that, that you're going to guilt them. You want people to do it voluntarily, and that's, what, that's how our God is. And you know, that's why we continually press and preach and teach the gospel. We keep pushing um, forward the truth of the, of the gospel that God loves his people. We've got to get that. God, not because you give him things. That's not how God operates. Our God is not like the gods of other religions in the world. I went to Burma several years ago, Burma, Asia, Myanmar, uh, is where my dad grew up. And I've been there and visited, and there's a, a place called the Shui Dagan, one of the biggest pagodas in the entire world. A golden Buddha, Buddhist uh, shrine is there, and there's a lot of uh, Buddhist statues that are there. And people are often kneeling before them, putting pieces of gold on them. Uh, they're also pouring water on them and putting flowers and incense and putting bowls of rice in front of these uh, idols. And one of our, there's a seminary over there that, uh, that I've been a part of, and there's a lady that's a believer that was walking us through Shui Dagan. And she, she, as we were walking through, she whispered to me, she said, you know, in other religions, worshipers have to, to care for their gods. But in Christianity, our God came down to take care of us. That is the major, a major difference. We don't uh, add anything to God. Remember this, God created the heavens and the earth and all that dwells within it. That, that is, what I just said is amazing beyond comprehension. And for us to think that God is wanting, like, forcing us to do, give him something, what can we give him that he doesn't already have? That's not how our God is. He came down to die for the people that he loves. And when that truth is alive in us, when we get that, it frees us, it motivates us to fully live our lives for him, just like Barnabas, to give it all. Not out of guilt, not out of shame, not because we're being forced to, but because we have a heart of love for God. And so what I want us to see this morning is, is that the sin that was committed was not that they kept back some of the money for themselves, but rather, here it is, they lied pretending to be something that they were not. They were pretending to be somebody they were not. They were pretending to be sacrificial givers in front of the entire church and before God. And you know, Jesus identifies, the, Jesus identifies this as being a hypocrite, right? Um, and back in the day of Jesus, we've talked about this before, a hypocrite was not actually seen as a bad thing. A hypocrite was an actor who wore a mask. They would wear, the, they would wear masks 
in order to portray different characters in plays. And so Jesus, when he called you a hypocrite, he's saying, you're wearing a mask. You're not being real. Uh, you're being a hypocrite. And over time, hypocrite became a word to describe liars and deceivers. So, number one, what was their sin? Lying and hypocrisy. Secondly, what was their motivation? What motivated them to sin? It's, it's, it's important that we understand that because we all do what we do for a reason. Why did you come today? Something motivated you to come to church today and to sit down and, and to listen to a message, to sing, to praise God. What was your motivation? And you know, I believe that the main motivation of Ananias and Sapphira to do what they did was fear. They feared. They feared man instead of fearing God. And we're going to get into that a little bit more uh, in just a second, what it means to fear man and what it means to fear God. But we need to understand that you are going to serve whatever you fear. Whatever you fear, you will serve. And every day, every single day, we make choices on who or what we're going to serve. Now, there's a song by a guy named Bob Dylan. Scott, what, what song am I thinking about? You got to serve somebody. I knew if you didn't know it, I was going to the Cassells because I know they know this. He wrote a song. Well, I don't know if he wrote it, but he sang a song. It's called You Got to Serve Somebody. Kev, where's Kevin at? Let's do it at the end, all right? All right. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it might be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's something that we need to understand. You're serving somebody every day, something or somebody every day. And the question you've got to ask is, who is it? Is it God? Is it yourself? Is it man? And when it comes to the fear of man and to the fear of God, I want to, what I want to do right now is look at some two passages, two verses that talk about both. And see how God looks at the fear of man and the fear of God. It says in Proverbs 29, 25, The fear of man brings a, a snare. Uh, it brings a trap, like a bird that goes into a, a, a trap that gets caught. So this, it says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. That's the fear of the Lord, uh, fear of man. Psalm 34, 8 through 9 speaks about the fear of the Lord. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm going to read that again. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. I, sometimes when we talk about fearing the Lord, we think of this, this bad gut. No. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. How blessed is the man, in other words, that trusts in him, who puts their hope in him. 
And then verse 9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him, there is no want. He takes care of his children. He takes care of his people. So in, in these two passages, notice that the fear of man is discouraged and the fear of the Lord is encouraged. So let's say, a- answer two questions. What does it mean to fear man? What does it mean to fear man? Well, let me, I'm going to just give two examples to show you what it looks like. Have you ever been talking to somebody? Maybe it was a stranger. Maybe it was uh, someone that you're going through the line uh, in a checkout. Um, and you're talking to them, and you sense the Lord telling you, talk to them about Jesus. And you're talking, and all of a sudden you're filled with fear, and you don't do it. As, can, I, can I get a hands up that you've ever done that? Okay. That is, that is what happened there. You feared that person, right? Or have you ever been uh, seen someone who's doing something that you don't agree with, that's, that you know is against the Word of God. Maybe they're telling an, an off-colored joke. Uh, maybe they're bullying someone. Uh, maybe they are talking to you about a lifestyle that you clearly don't agree with. And as you're talking to them, you, you like go ahead and laugh at the joke, even though you don't want to, or you don't say something t- t- about the person that's being bullied, or you kind of you kind of agree with them as they're talking about that sinful lifestyle that you, you know is not right, but you're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That right there is also fearing man when you could or should have said something to say, hey, you know, you're actually, I don't agree with what you're doing. The Lord doesn't agree with what you're doing. That's the fear. That's what the fear of man looks like. And let me ask you this morning, what are you fearing? What are you fearing? Do you fear man? Because every single person here, I don't care who you are, we all want to be valued. We want to be accepted. We want to be encouraged. And we have this deep, deep, deep desire deep within us to be loved and to belong. And when we make man our source for that fulfillment, instead of God, then the fear of man is going to keep us from living for God, because we will fear that they will reject us or ostracize us, and we will be tempted to give in to sin in order to receive the praise of man instead of the praise of God. That's what the fear of man is. And I believe that in context that Ananias and Sapphira saw the sacrificial giving of Barnabas, they saw how the people responded and held him in high esteem and how he was revered in the community. And so they thought, I want that same praise. And so they feared or they sought the praise of man over the praise of God. And Peter says, you have not lied to man, but to God. You feared man instead of God. Now, let me ask you this. As you're listening and as you're assessing yourself, do you fear God? Do you fear God? And maybe you're asking, you know, what does that mean? What does it mean to fear God? Are we supposed to fear God? Now, I've already showed you verses that tell us to, but I mean, I thought there's verses like 2 Timothy 1.7 that says, God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control, right? Or 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love casts out 
fear, right? Well, these passages are, these verses have to do with fearing the judgment of God. We need to understand that there is a certain fear that we should have when it comes to the judgment of God. Now, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are, have come to Jesus, if you have uh, received what he did for you on the cross, if you've trusted in his death, if you've trusted in his burial, his resurrection, and his return, if you've trusted in him, then you have no fear of God's judgment because that's what God came to do, to take care of our fear of judgment. But let me say, say this to you this morning, if, and I don't know everybody here, I don't know your hearts, but listen, if you've never truly come to Jesus, I'm going to say something in love, okay? I'm going to try to say it real gently, um, and, but in truth, if you've not found forgiveness for your sins in Jesus, then you should fear. There, there is a fear that we should have of God because in, in Hebrews 10, 31 says that those who reject God need to understand that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 11 says, Paul speaking to the church, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Persuade others what? Persuade others to come to Jesus. But you know, when, when uh, believers talk about fearing the Lord, we are not talking about God's wrath. I want to go back over 1 John 4 and go through uh, 17 and 18. It says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of what? So that we may ha have confidence for the day of judgment, right? We talk about this regularly. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone. You know, everybody here is going to die unless the Lord comes back before then, but we're all going to die, right? 100%. And after we die, there is a judgment where we will stand before the Lord, which can be the most exciting time of your uh, existence, or it can be a fearful time. But he's saying that we, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence. We can confidently stand on the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect, you see, what, what love is he talking about? The love of Christ, what Christ did for us. We can be so confident in what Jesus did for us. We don't have to fear when we die. And if you are afraid of dying, there's only one reason that you should be afraid of dying, and that's because your sins have not been forgiven. But if your sins, and they have, if, you've, if, if you have come to Jesus, trusting that he paid for your sins, then you're, there's no judgment. There's no wrath left for you. God put it all out on Jesus. So, what does it mean to fear God? Well, for the believer, to fear the Lord involves having a deep reverence, a deep honor, a, a deep awe and respect for God. Reverence, honor, awe, respect. And I'm going to add one more thing here. It also involves fearing not punishment, but having a healthy fear of discipline. God disciplines His children. If you're his child and you're, you're going in a wrong way, 
God, like a loving parent would do, he is going to discipline you. And so to have the, uh, the fear of the Lord is, is similar to a healthy fear that children should have for their parents. Not uh, children cowering in a corner who are terrified of, of erratic mood swings because their father is an, is an alcoholic and, and one day he's happy, the next day he's in a rage. That's not, that's not the kind of fear we're talking about. We're talking about how a child should revere, honor, respect, uh, have, all, have a certain awe for their, their parents. And, uh, and we need, uh, like I said, to fear of being disciplined by the Lord if we don't respond to him. Now, one of the, a verse that I believe is a very, kind of summarizes what the fear of the Lord is, is Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Look how it's, it starts here. It starts with what God is do, has done for us. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, not fearful. Let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. And, and you might be saying, well, I thought God was good. I thought He was kind. I thought He was merciful. I thought He was gracious. And He is. But He's also, we need to remember, He's not like us. He's holy. He is set apart. And you may be asking, you know, why? That, that just seems like such harsh judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. And I have to agree with you. That was extremely harsh judgment on them. And I, I don't have all the answers of why God did not give them. It doesn't appear that he gave them a lot of opportunity to repent. We don't know what happened in between all that. Um, but I heard one time when somebody was talking about this passage, why did God kill them like that? Um, they said, well, you know, something that should amaze you more is why, hasn't, why has God been merciful to you, Right? And when I think about that, it makes me want to change, to grow, to follow the Lord with a full heart. So God is good. He is kind. He's merciful and He's gracious. And He hates sin. He hates sin. And he, sin isn't a little matter. How do we know that sin is not a little matter to God? Look at what He did to Jesus. Look at what He did to His own Son, he crushed his son and put him to death because not of his sin, but because of our sins. And he knows, God knows that if sin goes unchecked, if it is allowed to spread, it leads to perversion, it leads to rot, and it leads to, to decay. If sin goes unchecked, spouses cheat, families are torn apart, children are trafficked, Brothers and sisters of humanity oppress one another. Cities, communities, nations are filled with destruction, death, and despair. That is why God hates sin. And this account, like I said before, is a sobering account. It's disturbing. But it's not without hope. Um, let me ask you this morning, as I have been sharing, as I've been preaching, has God brought anything to your mind 
where he's revealed to you, you know what, you're actually walking in hypocrisy in this area. You're, you're actually covering, trying to cover your sin with a mask. And you know, this morning you can hear him saying, you know, today it's time to take off the mask. It's time to quit pretending. It's time to confess your sin. It's time to repent, turn and receive not wrath, but forgiveness. And maybe this morning you, you realize that in truth, you've never truly come to Jesus. You've never truly come to Him to have your sins forgiven. And maybe you've considered yourself a Christian your whole life, but this morning God is showing you, no, you've actually just been wearing a mask. You've been doing the right things, but you've never truly come to Jesus. And you can hear Him calling you. You can hear Him calling you this morning, take off your mask, come to me and walk in the truth. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you before you leave this morning, I want to encourage you to call out to the Lord, to come to Jesus, confess your sin, turn to Jesus, receive forgiveness, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then to the church, to the rest of us, let me ask you this. Who are you fearing? Who or what are you fearing? Is it God or is it man who is dust and cannot save? Are you trying to impress people by convincing them that you are something that you are not? Are you hiding? Are you living a secret life? Do you have a pet sin that, that you are nurturing and protecting? Maybe that's you this morning. And the truth is you're saying, actually, I, I have no peace right now, and I don't like where I'm at, and I feel trapped, and I'm struggling with secret sin, but I don't know what to do about it. And there is this passage in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 22, in the Law of Moses, that it talks about if a young woman is, uh, is violated by a man in the city, in the city, that the man that, if they're caught, the man that is caught is guilty. He, he will, uh, I believe it says he will be put to death. Now the woman, on the other hand, her guilt, her guilt is determined by one thing. And that is whether or not she cried out for help. And this morning, if you are in a place where you're struggling with secret sin, I want to encourage you to cry out for help. Stop pretending, knowing that if you will, if you'll repent and come to God, He is eager to forgive and to receive you in Christ Jesus. So this morning, how is the Lord speaking to you? Let me encourage you that if, if you are hearing his voice this morning, don't harden your heart, but come to him, respond to him. And in the words of Peter, he says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen.